Um, thank you all. Uh, pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, great conversations yesterday. I want to thank uh, Father Dominic and everybody for putting this together. I think it's a really wonderful time and timely co uh, conversation. I want to thank all you guys for showing up and giving our time. Uh, you seem to be your time to us. Uh, this should be a lot of fun. I was thinking um, yesterday, it's interesting how we've gone from the metaphysical to the social, and now I get to do the political. And I'm sure that wasn't planned out quite that way, but it certainly has seemed to shake out that way. I, I guess that's some sort of degradation of things over time. Um, I don't know what that says for what comes after me, but uh, <laughs> I guess I'm in the midpoint. Um, so to some extent, I think I'm going to end up being the bad guy in this conversation, but uh, hopefully I'll provoke some uh, questions uh, and maybe even uh, stir some agreement. On May 11th of 2020, my colleague in philosophy at Catholic University, Brad Lewis, and I published in Public Discourse an essay titled Bullish on the Common Good? Question mark, in which we responded to the increased frequency of calls by some Catholics for a return to the common good in American politics. Often these calls arise in the context of specific policy recommendations or hot button issues, like investment in the US manufacturing sector, or against pornography and transgenderism, or for greater governmental control over the rise of big tech. But equally often, these calls arise as general invocations for the common good against libertarian or classical liberal politics. The contemporary critique, critique of liberalism, titled illiberalism, differs little in my judgment from its predecessors, perhaps only by having a social media cauldron in which to curate followers, advance slogans, and boil emotions in the name of one's politics. But as Yves Simone wrote shortly after the war, to blaspheme the name, excuse me, the divine name of freedom at the same time that one condemned the false philosophy of liberalism was the easiest course to pursue, the course which demanded the least mental effort and the least courage. So Christians, Simone contended, cannot be on the side of those against freedom. Instead, they must be involved of the, in the defense against, and this is a quotation, an effort to con conquer freedom, which is renewed every day. The key to the defense of freedom, as Simone said then, and as the popes have repeated over and over, is to reaffirm John 8, 32, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The spirit of freedom has no worse enemy than falsehood. The conquest of freedom in daily life invo involves, above all else, a daily fight against falsehood. That fight is long and hard and requires the tools of the philosophical and theological trades. When done well, this fight, as McIntyre once said in the class I took with him, is the boring struggle and not the stuff of slogans and campaigns. Today I want to advance the claim that the sum total of our disagreements, and I apologize for that completely you know, trite uh, little game there, uh, the sum total of our disagreements is not to be found in theoretical disagreements about the common good, but about the role of practical reasoning in politics, which I take to be practical reflection upon the requirements of the common good. Some who invoke the common good uh, do so to short circuit political disagreement permitted today by the church in its understanding of the political common good, which in turn relates to her understanding of the modern state and the human being. 
We disagree, in other words, because some appeal to the common good to end political disagreement by the exercise of state power in defense of their conception of the common good. To be clear, they do not hide that agenda, okay? They do not hide the agenda that joins the invocation of the common good to overriding liberal institutions by which people contend over uh, the common good. A liberalism or post-liberalism has become the banner under which this project advances. Opposed to this is some 70 years of church teaching and sometimes uh, both regard and esteem for the potential of liberal institutions of democratic governance to limit states in their tendencies to become despotic. Those liberal institutions include, among other things, universal adult suffrage, guarantees of individual rights of human beings, including especially the right to religious freedom, and respect for the rule of law before which all stand as equals. Respect for these institutions enables and encourages a participatory politics engaged in practical reasoning about the conditions necessary for the fulfillment of particular and social goods. By its nature, such practical reasoning will always involve disagreement, argument when done well, and conflict when done poorly. And that practical reasoning will always thereby implicate the exercise of authority and freedom. Again, following Simone, we, we must acknowledge that the essential question for every social group is that of combining rightly the forces of authority and liberty. Our task in exploring the common good is to do so in as truthful, truthful a manner as possible, respectful of disagreement across a wide spectrum of views, and cognizant of the uses to which our arguments are put by those looking for kindling for the cauldron's fire. This task today will involve looking at some of the ways the church has moved beyond the state as a locus of thinking about the common good. So to clear the decks a little bit for this conversation, I want to return really quickly to the, uh, the essay that Brad and I um, wrote that was published in uh, Public Discourse. There we made three points. Uh, the first was that the disagreement between Maritan and Deconic had, in some circles, taken on an outsized significance. In our opinion, Maritan and DeConnick largely agreed with one another about the common good, and their few differences mattered little to practical political considerations, which is where much of the disagreement remains. In other words, if they were in disagreement, it is a mirror image of our own today. Maritan and DeConnick did not disagree in theoretical or speculative claims about the common good, but at the level of practical reasoning about the character of the common good. Our view, on this, excuse me, our view on this agreement between them is shaped in part by Simone's opinion expressed in his 1944 Review of Politics essay on DeConnick's essay. In DeConnick's essay, Simone identified five uncontroversial and agreeable propositions about the common good. Simone suggested there that he, Maritan, and DeConnick had no issue with these propositions they were not the source of disagreement between them, and nor do I uh, count them as a source of disagreement among us here today. And, and of those five, I think Father Aquinas spoke of at least three of those yesterday, and probably all five of them were alluded to. A second point we made towards the end of our article is that efforts to abandon the common good 
because of the particular challenges of modernity, are also mistaken. And I don't think this is a concern of anybody in this room. But we're probably aware um, there's an emergent temptation of non-Catholics and some Catholics as well to abandon any talk of the common good or the idea of the common good. We wrote, no one would want to live in a political community that did not, in some important way, aim at the good of all of its citizens rather than just a few, or that was seen as a purely neutral means to the self-realization of atomized individuals. The common good is the goal of political institutions and practices, and the modern state must be limited by it. So whatever the relevance for political re reflection of modern difference of the state do not, in my view, count against the fact of there being a common good of even the modern bureaucratic state. In this, we agree as well with those who argue that no state can remain neutral about some conception of the good. So instead, I think contemporary invocations of uh, the common good, Brad's and my essay, and responses to it are animated by something that we wrote towards the end where we said, sometimes it is suggested that even if one concedes that contemporary liberal democracy, excuse me, liberal societies have some notion of the common good, as I just did, that notion is too attenuated to pass muster by means of comparison to the more traditional ideal. The common good should be understood as the life of virtue ordered to the ultimate good or God. This was certainly the, the point of the Connick's argument, but the fact is, Large and internally diverse modern societies simply do not have enough agreement on these goals to make them general guides for public policy. A feature of la large modern societies is their comfort with a staggering number of diverse competitive worldviews. Any advocacy for the conception of the common good as ordered to God has to take that pluralism into account in a way, say, which Aristotle and Thomas did not. Okay. This point rests obviously upon an assertion about the modern state and a related claim about the capacity of the state to instantiate what is often referred to as a thicker conception or a thick conception of the common good, but I think might better be called a sacralized conception of the common good, one that reintegrates the juridical order of the church with the state. We find support for our third point in the church's adoption of another way of characterizing the common good, which it has done consistently and repeatedly since the middle of the 20th century. So to some extent, right, I'm trying to vindicate uh, the language of the common good um, that we've already heard, the, the modern formulation of the common good that we've heard uh, referenced to earlier um, yesterday. We think the church's reformulation of the common good, which one can actually think of, I think, you know, I, I, I'm not making this argument here, but I might be interested in making this argument as a kind of development of social doctrine, right? We think the church's reformulation of the common good is done in part to address the differences between the modern state and prior political communities and to associated claims about the human person. The church's characterization of the common good does not, I think, contradict Thomas's, nor is it irrelevant to practical political considerations. Instead, I think a good case can be made that the reformulation is a drawing out of the implications of the classic Thomistic doctrine, given the particular circumstances of our age. Thus, the church's conception of the common good, which you all know, right, as the sum of conditions leading to the flourishing of persons and their social groups, cautions against inflated expectations from the state. Likewise, the reformulation of the common good cautions against idealizing prior juridical arrangements between the church and state 
that the church has arguably long since disavowed in no small part because of her own concern about how that relationship damaged her witness. Such claims find support in nearly all of church teachings in the middle, since the middle of the 20th century, and I believe are consistent with the claims Simone identified as grounds of agreement among him, Maritan, and Deconic. So I take it as uncontroversial, um, and, but maybe it is controversial. I take it as uncontroversial that the starting point of our considerations about the common good needs to be magisterial teaching on the common good. Church teaching, uh, as many of you know, uh, since Mater et Magistra and up to and through Laudato Si, inclusive of the catechism and, as Russ pointed out, the compendium, continually defines the common good in this, some version of this modern formulation as the sum of those conditions of social life that allow social groups and their individual members relatively thorough and easy access to their own fulfillment. Though unpoetic and often restated, this definition has remained remarkably stable for 70 years, and its wording therefore merits close attention. Such an emphatic, consistent restatement of the common good by the magisterium cannot be ignored. So let's start with some of the elements of it. Let's take you know, a quick, quick look at some of the elements. The common good uh, as a sum of conditions suggests a, a quantitative aspect, right? Something, of course, that is repugnant given you know, everything that we talked about yesterday. An adding together of a plurality of conditions and perhaps even more frustrating, an instrumentality for conditions are always spoken of in terms of the thing you know, to which the conditions point. In this case, the fulfillment of individuals and social groups. To speak then of the common good of a, as a sum of conditions for some end, it seems clear, is to cease speaking of it as an end in its own right and to regard it as instrumental, to regard it in instrumental or worse, even utilitarian terms. In addition, the language suggests a different role for the state, or what we might call public authority. Instead of being the guarantor of the attainment of the common good explicitly ordered to God, the state is reduced to the caretaker, caretaker of the maintenance of the conditions by, human, by which human persons and groups pursue their goods. Taken together, the language of the definition seems a significant departure from even a debasement of the classical conception of the common good as the defined end of a community of persons towards and by which their activity is ordered, justi justified, and measured. A sum of conditions, even of the sort that leads to personal and social fulfillment, is not, of the, is not the sort of thing that one invokes to inspire minimal sacrifice let alone the, the sorts of sacrifice political communities routinely inspire in the name of their good. Nonetheless, the conditions of the common good remain closely connected to the flourishing or the fulfillment of persons and social groups. As Brad notes, the Latin word fulfill for fulfillment in the definition is perfectio. The language of perfection pushes against the apparent debasement of the concept arising from its instrumentality. For while sum of conditions thins out the de definition in comparison to the older concept, retention of the language of perfection restores the bar to its divine height. The sum of conditions spoken of in the new definition is ordered towards the noble end achievable by human, being, human beings as individuals and in groups. 
the fulfillment of persons and their social groups is not reducible to whim. It is not reduced, reducible to subjectivity. It's, and it does set the context for ordering and evaluating any uh, society's attainment of these conditions. I think it's also important to note that the definitions don't reduce the common good to these conditions. The clearest expression of this comes in Gaudium et Spes 74, where we're told the common good embraces, the language is the summa, right, the, the sum total, the summa of these conditions, right, it's not merely these conditions. The language of perfection thus echoes the classical conception of the common good related to the communitas perfecta, alone capable of fulfilling the nature of human beings as social beings. And the conditions, therefore, are not just any conditions, but those connected to true human goods of persons and their social groups. And therefore, they can continue to be ordered and measured quite concretely in terms of their achievement of those goods. All of these conditions must be ordered towards genuine human fulfillment. Public authority remains beholden to their concrete expression at every moment of any society's life. The political community serves this common good, which includes this summa of conditions necessary to social life. So, for instance, a political community's hostility or congeniality towards the natural good of religion is a measure by which to judge the community's provision of these conditions necessary to human flourishing. In the words of Gaudium et Spes, right, the paragraph was 74 I was looking at right now, this is 76, shortly after providing the reformulation of the common good, it says, at all times and all places, the church should have true freedom to preach the, uh, the faith, to teach her social doctrine, to exercise her role freely among men, and to also to pass moral judgment in those matters which regard public order when the fundamental rights of a person or the salvation of souls require it. This is demanding uh, from the state nothing less than the church's freedom to make use of the temporal order for the sake of preaching and living the gospel. Any political community failing to protect this freedom would be failing in terms of the common good. In other words, such a political community, such a state, would be despotic by that failure. Further, all forms of the definition closely connect the flourishing of individuals and social groups to each other, suggesting an attempt is being made to avoid lapsing into an individualistic conception of the common good by embedding the definition within the classical understanding of the human being as a social creature. The common good of the new formulation is not an aggregation of particular goods, nor is it a good of the common alien to the good of individual humans. The context of the definitions, again, makes clear this attempt right, to link these things. So, for instance, in the Catechism, the reformulation of the common good comes at num number 1907, right after in 1905, reminding us of man's social nature. The common good is no both, even in this reformulation, is no bonum alienum. Criticisms of the newer formulation then cannot easily claim that it's overly individualistic. Both the language and the context of the uh, formulation adhere to the social nature of, the hu of human beings. The common good as described by the Vatican II formulation does not depart either from the communicability or the sociality aspects of the classic formulation of the common good. The sum of conditions necessary for human flourish flourishing is communicable to other human beings and not diminished by their participation in it. 
And the common good really is common in the sense of being genuinely good for both individuals and social groups at the same time. The political common good is the end of coordinated action that serves the good of both the community as a whole and the goods of each member of that community in particular. Thus, the common good does not identify some end of collective activity to which some individual ends must be sacrificed as though the good in common can only be, be pursued at the expense of the good of some, of the goods of some. The common good is the good of all and of each in particular. The common good is both one in the sense of indivisible and universal in the sense of serving the good of every particular member of that community. When political communities fail to pursue the common good, they diminish their members' flourishing. And likewise, when the members of political co communities fail to order their activities toward the common good, when the, uh, not only do they undermine their own flourishing, but they also diminish the community of which they are a part. So if we grant that the reformulation strives to retain the essence of the classical common uh, good formulation, we're left to wonder why. Why the church has seen fit to advance a reformulation at all? Why not just keep speaking of the common good in classical terms? Again, I think the context of the reformulation provides guidance. Generally speaking, when the common good is referred to, it is usually done accompanied by claims that on the one hand assert some limitations on the activity of the state and on the other refer to the human person. Two quick examples. In Gaudium et Spes 26, the new formulation is introduced in the context of the common good of the entire human family, perhaps the giganticism problem, right? But this is the context in which, in 26, this formulation is first introduced in Gaudium et Spes. The common good, we are told, this is a quotation, today takes on an increasingly universal complexion and consequently involves rights and duties with respect to the whole human race. Every social group must take account of the needs and legitimate aspirations of other groups and even of the general welfare of the entire human family. The document then immediately speaks of the dignity of the human person, his universal and inviolable rights, and the necessity of his being provided all the material conditions that conduce to his attainment of the common good. This definition is clearly not uh, contained, excuse me, clearly not claiming that these material conditions are the common good. They are included in the common good. Not a betrayal, I think, then of the classical formulation, but a specification or a deepening of it given the circumstances. A second vigorous example of recent teaching, uh, teaching's effort to limit the activity of the state in the context of talking about the common good comes up, as Russ knows real well, in Centesimus Annus, where Pope John Paul, says, uh, John Paul II says of Rerum Novarum that though Pope Leo XIII there calls on the state to address the common good on behalf of the laborer, and here's the quotation, this should not, however, lead us to think that Pope Leo expected the state to solve every social problem. On the contrary, he frequently insists on necessary limits to the state's intervention and, you know, more, more infamously, on its instrumental character. Inasmuch as the individual, the family, and society are prior to the state, and inasmuch as the state exists in order to protect their, their rights and not stifle them. We see in John Paul II's stark terms an instrumental role for the state. It serves the goods of individuals and the groups pursuing their goods. 
Okay. Related to this move, recasting the uh, relationship of the common good with the state is a complementary insight into the human person and the particular ways by which the contemporary state can actually impede the person's attainment of his or her end. On the one hand, as an instrument for the attainment of the conditions necessary for human flourishing, the state has a necessary and irreplaceable function in human fulfillment. There remains a common good as the conditions of human flourishing expressible only in the state, and this includes but is not reducible to conditions like political stability, the rule of law, the communications of values and beliefs across perspectival and ideological differences, and certain material conditions including economic, labor, and health concerns often expressed in terms of human rights. Thus, the contemporary formulation of the common good towards which all politics, including the politics of state, are ordered, legitimate, and measured, and an emphatic defense of the freedom of the church. But on the other hand, features particular to the modern state serve as obstacles to human flourishing, and many of these features are unfortunately and indefinitely embedded in the state in its current form. They have led the church warns, over and over to new forms of despotism. Foremost among these has to be the unparalleled extension of state power into nearly every citizen's lives, or life. Uh, empowered by staggering developments in science, politics, and technology, modern states possess a formative governing capacity previously unimagined or reserved only for the gods. The, that power extends to all of creation in its most minute elements. The potential shaping of the human possessed by the state is boundless and godlike. The comparison of the common good to, of the polis to the divine is as old as Greek philosophy, but that comparison was to the analogically divine attributes of society, including its virtual immortality, its plenitude, and its ability to perform by common action things almost human, almost superhuman. Political society, however, is not today distinguished by virtual immortality, the generational extension of society and time, but a spatial and even an, even an imaginative exhaustiveness. The modern state's reach extends into almost every corner of human experience. No citizens escape its bureaucratic and technical reach, and few as individuals or even social groups can navigate its complex sea lanes of agencies, rules, laws, and regulations. The state's capacity for an actual exercise of coercive, coercive oppression is unprecedented. To be clear, this capacity is indifferent to the political form of the state. Illiberal China offers an excellent example of the actualization of this capacity just as liberal United States offers perhaps an excellent example to its potential to activate this capacity or, incre you know, increased, or maybe increased activization of this capacity, depending on how you read things. But the state's exhaustiveness is not merely the function of technical means and technological prog progress. It is a consequence also of secularization that has diminished the importance of religion proportional to the state's exaltation of its own powers of explanation, meaning provision, and needs satisfaction. The state has substituted itself for all alternative sources of meaning and explanation, in particular in its articulation of itself as the engine of an, 
uh, inevitable process of efficiency, reliability, and predictability. The expansion of knowledge, the perfection of tech technical means, the regularity of progress, and the predictable predictability of outcomes the state alone assures. The state is infallible. Failures instead are the result of user error, individual human action confounding the, state judge, the state's judgments or those of its representatives. These features of the modern state, I think, have been visible for the past 11 months by its imposition of a monolithic conception of health around which it has organized all of our social lives. A commonality of modern states is over-governing. The assumption of tasks before left to more local groups and alternative institutions. States fail, authority fails, when it assumes tasks the, governs, the governed can complete on their own. By the exercise of its power, states can retard and have retarded the apt development of human freedom necessary to the attainment of virtue. States have thus become despotic, as the popes have reminded us, in previously unimaginable ways, subjecting their populations to new forms of servitude. In his excellent reflections on authority, Simone wrote of the imperialistic tendency of authority, which he attributed above all to the state. This insight has led the state, excuse me, the church over time to a rejection of both the claims of absolutism and sovereignty associated with the state and to a development of the church's position on participatory politics and liberal institutions, even if she continues to reject doctrinaire liberalism, which she clearly does. Since at least Immortality Day in 1888, the church has acknowledged the legitimacy of democratic participation and self-governance, with Pope Leo XIII writing against those Catholics believing democracy must condemn, quotation, no one of the several forms of government is, it, is in itself condemned inasmuch as none of them contains anything contrary to Catholic doctrine, and all of them are capable, if wisely and justly managed, to ensure the welfare of the state. Neither is it blameworthy in itself in any manner for the people to have a share, greater or less, in the government. For at certain times and under certain laws, such participation may, may not only be of benefit to the citizens, but even, an, even be an obligation. That hesitating and negative formulation, right, neither is it blameworthy in itself, has long since been eclipsed in Catholic teaching with the trumpeting of the expansion of political and economic participation for many decades. Indeed, as an example, no pope has made the connection between the rise of democracy and Christian faith as clearly as Pope Benedict, who both championed democracy as connected to Christianity and thus warned, for instance, against the difficulties of its exportation to Muslim societies, right? Right, he's championed democracy as connected to Christianity, and he's championed freedom of worship as the basis of, of all human rights and a check against the modern state's tendencies towards despotism. In language echoing Augustine's description of how the city of God makes use of the earthly city, the, the church has declared the autonomy and independence of the political community and the church. The church makes use of this independent political community for her preaching the truths of the gospel. And by her teaching and the witness of the faithful, the church respects and promotes, promotes the political freedom and the responsibility of citizens. That's Gaudium at Spes 76. But the church never places her hopes in any privilege according to it by civil, accorded to it by civil authority. 
Indeed, she will give up the exercise of certain legitimately acquired rights whenever it becomes clear that their use will compromise the sincerity of her witness or whenever new circumstances require another arrangement. And all of this language of circumstances, I think, is really important, right? There's clearly like an effort here to be very circumstantially um, aware, right? Cognizant of what the circumstances require, both of the church, political communities, and so on. We should not, however, confuse the defense of freedom of worship with an indifference to the good of faith for persons or their communities. <clears throat> the refusal at one level, right, of social or political organization, the refusal of, at one level to recommend or even impose certain forms of religious belief may be done precisely to allow its recommendation and even imposition at some other level of human organization including most obviously the family and within the churches themselves. All these considerations about the state are offered to help account for the reformulation of the common and good in a way that is less dependent upon the state for its expression and defense. All of them, of course, can be contested and taken alone. They do not suffice to account for the, for the move from the classic to the uh, modern formulation of the common good. They are part of explaining the modern formulation formulations avoidance of a thick conception of the common good in referring to the state or a, or a sacral conception. As Brad writes, the analogical aspect of the common good means that one can see it as encompassing wider or more, more narrow contexts that allow us to apply it to the political environment of the modern state in a somewhat thinner and more formal sense than one, than one might apply in other communities. The essence of the common good consists in shaping political reasoning towards the good of the entire community, suggesting, should, suggesting even and making intelligible those cases where individual goods may have to be sacrificed for its sake. This points back, of course, to the classic conception of the, of the primacy of the common over a particular good as a point, of a point of agreement between all of us. Even in our liberal atomized, atomized age, People understand and are willing to sacrifice for all kinds of goods beyond themselves. Simone writes, people of debased conduct and skeptical judgment still find it natural to die for their country. Indeed, one could argue the durability of this natural inclination explains much of the experienced meaninglessness in our time when people are not afforded the opportunities to make these sacrifices. Unless given good reason to assume otherwise, we are not in a position to think our peers are failing to direct their lives around communal goods. Just as the profession of one's doctrine of the common good is not equivalent to pursuing the common good, failure to profess the common good does not equate to failing to seek it. Okay? Want me to read? Should I repeat that one? I'm pretty fast, right? I, I re from, I'm from New York, my apologies. Just as the profession of one's doctrine of the common good is not equivalent to pursuing the common good, failure to profess the common good does not equate to failing to seek it. Sure, there are disagreements about what regard for the common good requires in each and every case, and there remain real questions about the overlap of different communities and their goods in which we find ourselves. But those disagreements are not generally about whether to care for the common good. They are instead about the character of the common good. 
Every day, millions of Americans engage in all sorts of behavior indicating regard for the common good. They go to work, which can be as obviously common good oriented as serving in the military and fire and police departments, as nurses, and a range of civil service jobs. They scrimp and save for their children and their children's children. They pay their taxes. They send their children to school or school them themselves. They engage in local and less local politics, often fighting hard for, th hard for things ranging from dog parks to national defense and China policy. And they almost universally accept their political losses with perspective, perseverance, and determination. Even in a year as crazy as the one that just passed, the vast majority of Americans are back to doing all the sorts of things that evince concern for the goods of the communities they inhabit. No doubt many of us are confounded by the varied ways Americans evince those concerns. We experience a multitude of conflicting views about how to achieve the, how to achieve the conditions necessary for human flourishing. Prior to factoring in either the differences in modern social experiences of moral and cultural and religious pluralism or the emergence of the human being as a subject or person, simple acknowledgement of good faith disagreement rooted in perspectival differences alerts us to the challenges associated with life in community. Even within a family, differences of perspective counsel intelligibly for different prudential judgments on how to serve the family's good. Yet when thinking about the character of the, of the common good of a co concrete community, many of us often desire its character to express our own. And when it does not, our, impatient, our impatience leads us into concluding co concern for the common good has been forsworn. The failure, we think, isn't one of prudential judgment, but lack of concern for the common good. We have failed in these instances to distinguish the concrete requirements of the common good, in this case, for, the, for concern for the common good generally. For the just, perhaps, right, for the virtuous, perhaps, no such distinction is necessary. There will be no gap between their insight into the demands of the common good in this case and their love for the common good. As Simone writes of the just, the volition and the intention of the common good are guaranteed by virtue. For the rest of us, however, there will be some gap. In other words, for the rest of us, we can distinguish between materially and formally willing the common good. A thing can appear as good or bad, depending upon points of view. So long as a thing is good in one respect and bad, and bad in another respect, there is nothing wrong about its being desired by one to whom it is related in its desirable aspect and hated by the other who happens to occupy such a position as to regard the thing in its undesirable aspect. So we have to assume the worst about our fellow citizens, about our peers, our colleagues, if we think they do not formally intend the common good when they deeply disagree with, it, disagree with us about its material requirements. And when we appeal to the common good to resolve this disagreement, as though by that appeal we can erase the gap between materially and informally intending the common good, erase, in other words, the very real, predictable, and quite common occurrence of disagreement among men and women of imperfect virtue, they rightly intuit a bad faith move on our part. 
one that skips over the practical reasoning about the common good in which we're all supposed to be engaged in favor of restricting their freedom so we can impose our own imperfect conception upon them. This is no doubt why so many perceive so-called common good conservatism as contrary to the common good because not respectful of their freedom to participate in political deliberation. In other words, they perceive our appeals as despotic, formally intending not the common good, but the good of those of us advancing it. We are, in other words, seeking a shortcut around the hard work required by life and community. The unpardonable sin of intellectuals, of our intellectuals, Simone wrote, is to have chosen the road of minimum effort and minimum generosity. So far as I can tell, our peers are right about this. Instead, the work of the church and its social tradition has been that hard work described by Simone, the daily work to strive for the coherence of truth and freedom in its relationship with authority, respectful of the different ways men and women strive to order their lives around the common good. Thank you very much.